It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pucks and Cups. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. You can support all of my podcasts, Pucks and Cups, Canadian History X, and From John to Justin through that website for $3 a month. You can also donate at CanadaEHX.com. If there was someone in the old days of hockey who was cut from a different cloth, it was Eddie Shore. Not only was he highly gifted as a defenseman, but he was one of the toughest guys on the ice, and the stories of his hockey exploits have become legendary. He is so well known for old-time hockey that he was name-dropped in the greatest hockey movie ever made, Slapshot. We're losing! Teamwork, guys. More teamwork. They're burying us alive! Eddie Shore? Oh, piss on Eddie Shore! Old-time hockey? Piss on old-time hockey! You're blowing it! As with the players I feature on here, we have to begin with the early days when they were just someone who had a dream of making it to the NHL one day. Eddie Shore was born in Fort Cuapel, which today is in Saskatchewan but at the time was in the Northwest Territories, on November 25, 1902. Growing up on a ranch near Cupar, Saskatchewan, he spent his time breaking horses, herding stock and hauling grain. All of this helped form him into the man who could handle the physical grind of hockey. In Cupar, the first rink was 44 feet by 100 feet, and that was the first ice surface Shore would skate on. In school, Shore never did extremely well, and at one point was assigned spelling 20 words, he misspelled 18 of them. Shore was also known to skip school often and spent most winter days on the outdoor rink playing hockey instead of attending class. Through 1914 to 1918, he would play for the Cupar team, often at the mercy of the weather. In 1915, the first hockey game of the season could not be played until February 22nd. After the end of the First World War, Shore would go to the Manitoba Agricultural College with his brother, but he did not become the player he would eventually be yet. He did not make the school's hockey team, and after his older brother told him he would never be a good hockey player, Shore went all in on his dream. He began working hard and playing for the Cupar team that was in the Saskatchewan Intermediate C League from 1919 to 1923. One story of that time comes from when the team was playing in Moose Jaw, but Shore was having trouble skating and kept tripping and falling over. Fans assumed that Shore was drunk, but it was later discovered that the man in the Moose Jaw rink had sharpened Shore's skates backwards. And no proof of this could be found, but the team did lose the game. In 1922, Cooper won the Southern Championship against Moose Jaw and played Melville in the Provincial Final. The display Shore put on would eventually lead to the Melville Millionaires asking Shore to play for them in the 1923-24 season. He would accept and led them to the Saskatchewan Senior Championship in his first year. This was not a professional league, so Shore worked as a fireman for the railway during that same time. During a championship game against Winnipeg, the Melville coach instructed Shore to not take a penalty no matter what. Shore agreed, and as the game went on, the Winnipeg players began to see that Shore was not going to retaliate, and they started to hit him harder and harder. 
Shore played a full 50 minutes in the game and was eventually hit so hard that he had to be taken to the dressing room, unconscious with a broken jaw, a broken nose, and the loss of six teeth. Continuing his run through professional hockey and moving up the ranks, he next played for the Regina Capitals of the Western Canada Hockey League in 1925. His coach, Wes Champ, said of him during this time with the team, quote, Not only a fast skater, but a flashy attacker as well, and he carries the weight to make him a hard man to stop. When the team folded and moved to Portland the next season, Shore chose to play for the Edmonton Eskimos, who had won the WCHL the previous season. It was there that he went from playing as a forward to playing as a defenseman. It was also in Edmonton he gained the nickname the Edmonton Express. And in Edmonton, he met Kate McRae, his future wife. She was a star with the Edmonton grads from 1924 to 1929, and Shore bought a farm outside Edmonton with the plan of staying in Edmonton for a while. I did an episode on the Edmonton grads back in September, and I encourage you to check it out. Shore helped guide the Eskimos to first place in the league, and they would play in the final round against Vancouver. In one of the first games in the final, Shore was cut on the leg by a skate, requiring 14 stitches. It was not known if he could play the final game of the series, and one of his teammates joked that he was faking the injury. Shore, taking it quite seriously, went on to prove his teammate wrong. He played the entire game, but the stitches in his leg came out and blood started to seep down his leg, leaving a trail on the ice as he played. He played a brilliant game, but Vancouver came out ahead and won the series. The WCHL would fold in 1926 and Shore's contract was sold to the Boston Bruins and he would make the team his first season where he had 12 goals and 6 assists for 18 points. Along with 18 points, he had 130 penalty minutes, which was a record for the time. In fact, Shore's first fight in the NHL was with a teammate at training camp. Despite playing defense and being a rookie, his goal total was exceeded by only three Boston players, all of them forwards. His influence was seen immediately as he helped the team reach its first Stanley Cup in 1929. It was in Boston we have one of the first stories of the legendary grit and toughness that Eddie Shore brought to the game. In the 1925-26 season, Billy Cotu and Sprague Cleghorn were traded to the Bruins from Montreal. Cleghorn, who I have an episode about coming up very soon, was known for being one of the most aggressive players in the NHL history, and after Lady Bing saw him play, she donated a trophy to the NHL that rewards gentlemanly play. During their first practice with the Bruins, Shore strutted back and forth in front of the two new players. Cotu responded by picking up the puck and rushing Shore after he had tried to torment Shore with headbutts, elbows, and more. The two players would collide, but Shore held his ground and Cotu flew through the air, hitting the ice hard and being knocked out. While Cotu would be out for a week from the hit, Shore had his ear nearly ripped off his head. Barely noticing the injury, he would be told that his ear had to be amputated, which Shore refused. He then visited several doctors until he found one that would sew it back on. Refusing any sort of anesthetic, Shore used a mirror to watch the doctor sew the ear back on. Shore is quoted as saying that he was, quote, just a prairie boy who did not want his looks messed up. In another game against the Maroons, a Maroon player tore open Shore's cheek with his stick, and another player sliced his chin. Throughout the game, the Maroon players continually attacked Shore, and by the end of the game he had been hit hard enough to lose several teeth and was unconscious on the ice for 14 minutes. In that one game, he had a broken nose, two black eyes, a gashed cheekbone, a two-inch cut above his left eye, and three broken teeth. 
Shore got his revenge in the 1927 playoff series against the Maroons, where he methodically attacked each player one at a time, getting into two fistfights and nearly chasing the Maroons off the ice. Sometimes the shenanigans of Shore would cross sports. In January of 1930, Art Shires challenged Shore to a boxing match. NHL president Frank Calder said he could if Boston manager Art Ross was okay with it. Shire had begun boxing in December 1929, knocking out one fighter in 21 seconds that month. After defeating Boston Braves player Al Sofer in four rounds at Boston Garden, he wanted to fight Shore because he knew of his known fighting skills. Major League Baseball Commissioner Judge Kenishaw Mountain Landis would prevent this from happening by stating any baseball player who engaged in boxing would be considered retired from baseball, which ended the fighting career of Shires. Another story from Off the Ice centered on Shore's attempt to get to a game on January 3, 1929. On January 2nd, all the Boston players were outside getting ready to board the train for a game against the Maroons the next day. Everyone was there except Shore, who was stuck in traffic in Boston. He missed the train, but he was not going to miss the game. He arranged for a flight to Montreal, but all the flights were then grounded due to a snowstorm. Shore then contacted a wealthy friend who offered him a limousine and his chauffeur. Shore left with the chauffeur at 11.30pm in a snowstorm. The chauffeur drove until the limo slid into a ditch. Shore then took over the driving, and he arrived at an all-night gas station where he bought tire chains. Continuing to drive north and near zero visibility, the wiper blade then froze to the window, so Shore removed the top half of the windshield and continued to drive. At 5am, the chains gave out, and Shore bought a new set of chains at another gas station. The car would slide four times off the road before they reached the Canadian border. At 3pm the next day, Shore let the chauffeur drive so that Shore could fall asleep. As soon as he did, the car went into another ditch. Shore then walked to a nearby farmhouse and bought a team of horses for $8, or $118 today, and took the horses to the car and pulled it out of the ditch. At 5.30pm, Shore arrived at the Windsor Hotel and staggered exhausted into the lobby. Shore then ate a steak, had a short nap, and then splashed cold water on his face. Ignoring his manager, Art Ross, Shore dressed and played in the game. He scored the only goal of the game, winning it for Boston. Arguably the most famous of the incidents on the ice for Shore was on December 12, 1933, when he hit Ace Bailey of the Toronto Maple Leafs from behind. Bailey's head hit the ice, knocking him out and putting his body into convulsions. The incident came as a result of King Clancy, who I have an episode about coming up, when he upended Shore with a check as he rushed up the ice. Shore, looking to get back at Clancy, rushed Bailey, mistaking him for Clancy. After the hit on Bailey, Red Horner punched Shore so hard in the face that his head hit the ice, knocking him out as well, and resulting in seven stitches. Bailey was rushed to the hospital with a fractured skull and had to go to the operating room for four hours. There was speculation that he would die, and while he was in a coma for ten days, he did make a full recovery, but he never played professionally again. Red Horner would say later of the game, quote, Eddie Shore was having a frustrating night. He was playing a great game, but it wasn't getting him or the Bruins anywhere. They couldn't score on us. Going on to mention the infamous hit, Horner said, quote, He charged into Bailey on an angle from the side. He hit Bailey and flipped him in the air just like a rag doll. Bailey landed on his head just a few feet from where I was standing. 
Bailey hit the ice and he went into some sort of convulsion. I thought to myself, that's the end of Ace. Shores skated away in a very nonchalant fashion. I wasn't going to let him get away with that, so I went after him. Ace would regain consciousness and was being attended to by doctors. Shore, also having regained consciousness, went into the dressing room to apologize to Bailey, saying, quote, Ace, I'm sorry, I had no reason to do that to you. I hope you can forgive me. Bailey responded that it was all part of the game, before he lost consciousness again. A drunk fan then accused Bailey of faking his injury, prompting Maple Leafs manager Con Smythe to punch the fan in the face. Smythe would spend the night in jail for that, and had to pay the fan's dental bill. The next day, Bailey's father took a handgun and bought a train ticket to Boston to get revenge on Shore, only to be stopped by Frank Selkie. Shore was not allowed to visit Bailey in the hospital, and Bailey would once again say that there was no wrongdoing. Many thought that Bailey would die and his funeral was actually planned. Three times his death was announced, but Bailey did pull through. If Bailey had have died, it is likely Shore would have been charged with murder or manslaughter. Frank Calder would suspend Shore for 16 games, and upon his return to the NHL he would say, There was no bad feeling between us. It was purely accidental. The first All-Star Benefit game was held on February 14, 1934 to raise money for Bailey and his family, with nearly $21,000 raised, or $401,000 today. At the game, Bailey and Shore shook hands and embraced at center ice. The crowd cheered, but the incidents would stay with Shore for the rest of his life. Bailey would later say, quote, I hold no grudge. I see Eddie often when he comes up to Toronto for the games. It was just one of those things that happens. One player who always seemed to get under the skin of Shore was the aforementioned King Clancy. In one game in 1936, after Red Horner scored a goal for Toronto while in the crease, Clancy said to Shore, quote, Tough break, Eddie. You've been robbed. Don't let him get away with it. Shore then shot the puck at the referee, hitting him and taking a two-minute penalty. He then grabbed the puck and threw it into the stands, getting a ten-minute misconduct. This allowed Toronto to win the game and the series. Despite all of this, Shore rarely fought Clancy because of Clancy's quick wit. In one game, Clancy hit Shore hard enough that Shore dropped his gloves to fight. As Shore was about to punch, Clancy shook Shore's hand and said, Hi Eddie, the family okay? Shore started to laugh and skated away, shaking his head. In 1939, Shore would win a second Stanley Cup, and then retired and bought the Springfield Indians of the AHL. The Bruins then approached Shore about coming back to the team, offering him $200 per game, or $5,200 today. Shore played only four games before deciding his heart wasn't in it. He would obtain permission to play in home games for the Springfield Indians, and after pushing to play in the road games, he was traded to the New York Americans, despite owning the Indians. As a result, he played with the Americans until their elimination from the playoffs and then played for the Indians in their playoff games. In six games over six nights, he played three games for the Americans and three games for the Indians. On March 24, 1939, he played in his final NHL game against the Detroit Red Wings. Over the course of his career, Shore had won two Stanley Cups and was named to the NHL First All-Star Team in 1931, 1932, 1933, 1935, 1936, 1938, and 1939. And he was awarded the Hart Memorial Trophy four times, and only Gordie Howe and Wayne Gretzky have won it more. 
He won it in 1933, 1935, 1936, and 1938. He also won the Hart Trophy more than any other defenseman in history. And over the course of his NHL career, he had 105 goals and 179 assists for 284 points in 550 games, along with an astounding 1,047 penalty minutes. In February 1940, he was one of eight other arena managers who would help to organize the iconic ice capades that exist to this very day. In addition to his awards and points, during his career he also received 900 stitches on his body, fractures to his back, hip and collarbone, had his nose broken 14 times, his jaw cracked 5 times, and he lost every tooth in his mouth. While retired from the NHL, Shore played two more seasons with Springfield until the operations of the team were halted for the Second World War. Shore would move his players to Buffalo and he coached the Buffalo Bisons to the AHL Calder Cup Championship twice, in 1943 and 1944. In 1946, the Springfield Indians resumed play and Shore returned to that team. In 1959, Foster Hewitt spoke with Shore about his AHL team and the NHL during the intermission of a hockey game on Hockey Night in Canada. Our first guest during this intermission is Eddie Shore, who is possibly Mr. Hockey himself. And uh, Eddie, uh, of course, uh, uh, you almost owned this Boston Garden, I know, a number of years ago. Uh, I recall seeing you play in many a playoff game here in which you just seemed to have the, uh, the fans just at your fingertips. Well, I was very fortunate and very lucky to be uh, uh, with the Bruins, and uh, possibly if I wasn't with them, I wouldn't have been with anybody. I likely wouldn't have been good enough. Well, now tell me, Eddie, uh, you are the president of the Springfield Club, I understand. Yes, uh, what I'd like to know is that uh, uh, we know what caliber there is in the NHL. It's supposed to be the top, and I'm quite sure it is. Uh, how close is the gap between the NHL and the American League? Is it getting any closer as to player ability? Yes, I would say so. Uh, to prove the point is that boy Eamon that you have here with Toronto. Oh, yeah, I thought you'd come around to that. <laughs> uh, he's, uh, I would say, uh, as good as anybody on the ice tonight that I have seen. Maybe I'm a little prejudiced, but I don't think so. He's done a terrific job, and uh, in the stretch, uh, I think that uh, he was as much responsible for you folks getting in as uh, anybody else. He uh, came up with those tough, close game goals, and uh, those are the ones that paid off. He's been the trigger man, all yes, right. Yes, Well, now he attributes you, uh, or gives you credit for this uh, snapshot that he's developed. Tell us, what is the secret? Well, uh, if you watch his top hand, the secret of shooting, then whether you're a forward or a defenseman, is your top hand. Most people turn the hand so that the back of the hand is facing uh, to the wall. It yeah. should be facing to the top. And if you watch Jerry, when he lets go, his hands are about like that. So he's got all the power that any man can get and should have. And that is why he can let him go in a hurry. His both hands go together. The right hand just a slight bit faster than the... I'm right-handed, so it would be my right hand going just a slight faster forward 
than my left hand, and the puck is always back in line with him, or just in front of his feet, so that he is watching the puck out of the corner of his eye and can see the spots that he's going to shoot at. Most boys, unfortunately, look down when they're going to shoot instead of looking ahead. You've been a good pupil anyway, Eddie. Thank you so much for coming, Eddie Shore. Shore was a tough customer on the ice, known for battling anyone who was up for a challenge. As a manager, he was often seen as a man who treated his players with little respect. Even though he was a tough manager, the team actually did well under him. They would make the playoffs 12 times and won the Calder Cup in 1960, 61, and 62. The stories of his management style are as legendary as his abilities on the ice. He would fire two publicity directors in Springfield because they refused to help him clean the ice after a game. He asked his players' wives not to engage in romantic activities before a game because he felt it reduced the productivity of his players. One time, during a one-for-one trade with the Hershey Bears, for two players of equal value, Shore demanded that a new net be thrown into the deal so that he could at least receive more than Hershey received. During training camp, Shore was known to open the camps by having his players tap dance in the lobby of a hotel, do ballet steps on the ice, and even tape his players' hands to sticks if he felt they were in improper position. In 1967, Shore suspended three players for what he felt was indifferent play. The players would not receive any pay as a result, causing the rest of the team to refuse to play. Shore responded to this by suspending the two players who spoke for the team. The battle would escalate for months, and in the end, Shore gave the day-to-day operations of the team to the Los Angeles Kings. This incident would have long-lasting ramifications, though, as a little-known lawyer named Alan Eagleson was brought in to negotiate for the players. While he was eventually seen as a terrible person because he was stealing from players in coming decades, this incident with Shore led to the creation of the National Hockey League Players Association. Now, While many of his players said they hated his extreme methods, many also claimed they learned important hockey lessons they would have not received anywhere else. Kent Douglas once said that playing for Shore was like getting your doctorate in hockey science. As well, Shore was well known for being a kind man when it came to children. He would create a youth hockey program in Springfield, and Jim Anderson, a former coach of the Indians, would say, He always wanted to be known as the tough guy, and he never gave up that image. But to the kids, Shore let his guard down and showed a warm side. Shore would donate ice time to the Greater Springfield Amateur Hockey League so that children could play hockey, and he would often meet with hopeful young players at 6am to help them learn the game. Romeo Sear, who ran the youth hockey program in Springfield, said of Shore, quote, There was that tough exterior, but when he got with the kids, he was a different man. In 1953, a group of All-Stars from Springfield were given the chance to play in New Haven in the National Championship. Shore would coach the children for three weeks solid, then paid for their trips and sent them to Madison Square Garden as well. In 1974, Shore took control of the Indians back, and he took them to the Calder Cup in 1975 and then sold the team in 1976. On March 15, 1985, Shore was visiting his son in Springfield when he began to vomit up blood. He was rushed to the hospital and died the next day from liver cancer. Shore was honored extensively through his life for his contributions to hockey. 
1947, he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, and he had his number two retired by the Bruins that same year. He won the Lester B. Patrick Award for contributions to hockey in 1970, and in 1975, he was inducted into Canada's Sports Hall of Fame. In 2006, he was inducted into the AHL Hall of Fame, and in 1998, he ranked number 10 on the list of the 100 greatest hockey players of all time, the highest of any pre-World War II player. In 2017, he was part of the first group of players to be named as one of the 100 greatest NHL players in history. The Eddie Shore Award, awarded to the top defenseman in the AHL, was also created in his honour. Foster Hewitt, that legendary hockey broadcaster, when asked by Pierre Burton, my favourite historian, who the greatest hockey player ever was, he had one person in mind. You've seen every major league hockey player since the 20s. Can you, I'm sure you've been asked this before, but can you name the greatest of them all, in your opinion? Well, of course, it depends entirely uh, on uh, Pierre on the basis of where they play and what position they play. Uh, I, I'd have to lean almost to Eddie Shore. Really? With, with a, a quick answer, if you know what I mean. Uh, I think he was perhaps one of the most colorful hockey players I ever saw. And he was rough, tough, and nasty. Uh, every, well, I shouldn't say everybody. A lot of people hated him. He had color. He had about everything a hockey player should have. And uh, perhaps if I thought about it a little longer, I might come up with somebody else. But I, on the spur of the moment, I would say sure. You'd put him, put him over Howe or Morenz or... Well, of course, there again, it's an entirely Bobby different uh, type of player. Morenz was a spectacular player. Uh, he was one of the great centers of the old days. And yet when you come now to try and bring it up to date, I, I would say Milt Schmidt would perhaps be one of the great center players because he was rough, tough, and nasty. So and are you saying eat. that they have to be rough, tough, and nasty to be good because there'd be a big argument over that? It helps. it helps. It helps. It helps. <laughs> I don't mean uh, crude play, but just strong. I don't know any center player that was as strong as Milt Schmidt. In looking back on his life, Shore would say, Most of us were a little crazy one way or another. Some of us admit it. As for me, I'm not sorry about anything I've done in my life. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Pucks and Cups, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you want to reach me, you can. Just go to craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history, as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. In addition, you can support the podcast like I said. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have. Phil Maynard, Pamela Elder, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. You can find us on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just search for Bairdo37. Information comes from the Canadian Encyclopedia, Wikipedia, Hockey Hall of Fame, the American Hockey League Hall of Fame, the town of Kupar. Thanks. We'll see you again next time. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.